Today we have a special episode in honor of Halloween. I first became acquainted with this guest a few years ago when I was working as a local magazine editor. He reached out to me and shared that he was working to uncover facts about an unsolved Mooresville, North Carolina murder from 1937 so we could share the information with our readers. When I found out he was the author of a book about spooky stories of the Piedmont, I wanted to know more. We chatted recently about the still unsolved cold case, the alleged sightings of a mountain lion-like creature in our area, and reports of British redcoats still marching at night along a main road in Mooresville. He also shared a personal story of his own. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years, from the murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 70 the oldest unsolved murder in Mooresville, North Carolina, and other spooky tales. A native of Mooresville, North Carolina, O.C. Chris Stone Street IV has taught history for 30 years at Mooresville Senior High School and is also an adjunct professor of history at Central Piedmont Community College and Wingate University. He worked with St. James Episcopal Church in Shenville, North Carolina, in regards to their 19th century cemetery and delved into the research of the Shinville Witch. He is the author of Curse of the Wombus and Other Short Spooky Stories of Piedmont, North Carolina, and The Battle of Cowan's Ford, General Davidson's Stand on the Catawba River, and its place in North Carolina history. Today, we would like to welcome Chris Stone Street to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Chris. Honored to be here. So you and I first became acquainted when you shared the story of a 1937 unsolved murder that took place in Mooresville. Could you share more about 20-year-old Lucre Overcast and the circumstances behind her death with our listeners? Uh, yes, um, this is a 1937 January. Uh, Lucre was a recent graduate, um, just you know, 20 years old. Uh, she had just gotten married to Herman. Uh, Westmoreland, who worked here in the uh, mill section, and uh, on a January night, uh, dark and stormy night, quite literally very cold, uh, she goes missing, and the next morning, um, certain things happen, uh, and uh, the big question is, is what happened? The, the case is strange. It's sort of like, I guess you might say, Arnold County's versions of the biggest uh, clue case there is, in my view. So where was her body discovered again? Okay, what happened was, well, let me give sort of the time frame here. Her husband, Herman, worked in town, and they actually lived outside of town towards Shinville, which is just outside of Morrisville. And we're still, still with us sort of the township area. And uh, what happened was, is she married Herman just months before, like I said. And she was uh, actually living with Herman's father and younger brother, who was 17, uh, they had uh, also uh, um, two siblings that were young girls, I believe seven and nine. And she was brought in ostensibly to help take care of the girls. 
Uh, the mother had died just a few years before. I, I think it was cancer. I'd have to double check. Uh, and Herman would come here and work during the week and would go home on the weekends uh, usually or during the week, but he'd stay here in town. They had sort of like a room that they could stay in. And the night that he was, uh, uh, that this happened, it was a very bad rainy night, stormy, and he stayed. And of course, back then you had T models and A models that couldn't, a lot of the roads around here were not paved. A lot of people you know, forget that we had the luxury of paved roads. And there were very few paved roads at the time. And the next morning, uh, the father and uh, the two daughters, and this is a strange part. The timeline on this is what those of us that looked at this case uh, are looking at. The father and the two daughters ended up at Lou Cree's mother and father's house rather early, like seven. And they're like, we can't find her. Her bed has not been slipping. You know, we're worried about her. Uh, and what happens is there's a search. Um, and uh, a uh, good friend of mine, Jeff Wright, who teaches with me, his great uh, great grandfather, John Robert Lee McNeely, suggested looking in the well. And most properties here had wells. And uh, strangely enough, years before, not that many years before, a murder happened. And um, there's no mystery. We know what happened with this murder, but the murder threw the body of this guy down a well. And he said, you know, uh, have you checked the well, which is 50 feet from the, the house on the property? And sure enough, they had one of the workers there on the farm, this is a farm area, said that the animals weren't drinking the water. You know, so they lower, a, a, I can't imagine the horror this will be. They lower this uh, little boy down, down the well holding onto a rope and he screams and they see the one foot sticking up and and uh, of course, they bring him up, they go down and bring the body up. So she was discovered in the well probably about three or four hours after that she was reported that morning missing. So, um, and the, the position of the body was strange. Uh, the fact that uh, she was dressed in silk pajamas, uh, she had patent leather shoes, nice shoes, one was off. Um, she had, it looked like, put this way, it looked like someone had dressed her. And uh, the fact that there was no, when they did the coroner's commission uh, later, they didn't find any uh, water in the lungs, but they did find an impression on the back of her skull in the shape of a blunt force trauma of a triangle. And that's the, the position of the body at the time when they pulled it out. And, uh, you know, um, and uh, like I said, um, it's just, okay, A, you know, it wasn't a suicide. We knew that for a fact. And B, uh, what's strange is the two young daughters that she was taking care of were sleeping downstairs in the kitchen. And to get outside, she would have had to go through the kitchen. So what's going on here? You know, there, there were tracks. Um, they did find tracks where she had stood for a while um like on the under the awning of of the where her window was but then ran off um like you can see the tracks sort of getting wider from what the report said but there were no secondary tracks um and uh yeah so it's, it's crazy the dogs there did not bark so if someone's come to the property they would bark um so yeah you know
And what have the theories been on this case over the years that you've heard? Well, the theory is this. Well, Herman, her husband, had an airtight alibi. He was in town. People saw him. He was there. I uh, think in the boarding place they had, there were people there, you know, there with him. But the theories um, is the fact that probably circles down to two people. One is the father who, like I said, he was still in his like late forties. Here's a 21 year old, beautiful young woman, uh, taking care of your kids. The mother's been dead for four or five years. And one theory is, is that uh, he made a move on her and she said no. And um, a scuffle ensued, crime of passion. And he you know, pushed her or shoved her or, you know, with the triangle shape in the back of the head, and this is just me. I'm just putting my own two cents in. Do you remember the old tiny irons that were made of iron? They mm-hmm. sit on like the heart. Mm-hmm. When I heard that description, my mind went right to that. Turned around, how dare you? I'll tell your son smack. But here's the thing. Um, they had when he died, he was dying, they had a 24-hour watch around his bed hoping to get a deathbed confession. And he said to the moment he died, he did not do it. Um, but a lot of the people in the Overcash family, I believe, still believe it was it was a father. But the younger son has become under suspect recently because he was 17, rather stockly built. Certainly was probably closer in age to her than her, his father. Uh, and I interviewed a, one of the... Uh, relatives and like I said, I've been interviewing people over the years on this and she said I'll keep her name off the air but she said she was told by her family do not go near the younger brother who was named Robert Clyde now both Herman and Clyde served honorably in World War II now, I'm not trying to besmirch the, their name or anything but these are just theories that have been put forth and uh, that's where uh, like I said I've been looking at more because I've had more than one person said that the younger brother, um, you know, wasn't, how should, how should I say this? He was a little bit of an odd character. You know, that might have been just his personality, maybe reclusive. But, you know, I think it's between those two men. Because if there's anyone, you know, off of the uh, area, that it was a you know, fairly desolate area. Everyone knew everyone. That, you know, someone that was coming out of town probably would have been seen the situation and uh, there again if the brother had done it by accident could have missed could have been an accident i've heard different tales people had said within the the family the westmoreland family that that a couple of guys were rounders and were drunk came back she came out to say get quiet they pushed her and it she hit her head on the wheel you know like oh what do we do so there's all these different theories but um like I said, that this has been focused on those two. And the father could have died saying it was not me and been trying to cover for his son. You know, and uh, that's just a theory that those of us know the case um, have. It's one of those who were thinking. And what is the, the poem that was found a couple of years ago about this? Yes, boy, this is interesting. What? Okay, I've got to tell you, you're saying of spooky and interesting. Uh, my uh, good friend Jeff Wright, like I said, has a connection with the case through his his ancestry. My fifth grade teacher, Mary Lois Cook, who taught at Brawley for like 50 years, her father was on the coroner's commission that saw the body. Back in the past, you had a group of men that came in to watch 
uh, a coroner do the work and you know say here's evidence now we record it in digital whatever um, I guess but uh, you know there's so much connection with people that have been here for for many many years but um, you know uh, what happened was uh, after I did the article um, about every two years I've gotten an email or someone will call up and say my grandfather told me this or my grandmother or my friend's you know, it's almost every two years that something comes along. And then a couple of years ago, um, there's a poem that was found uh, in a cedar chest by a relative, uh, a, a Westmoreland relative. And in there, it's it's a, a poem. It's a, a cry from the grave. And uh, this poem uh, is, is, in fact, if you'd like me to read it now, I'm going to exit here second and i'm going to see you disappeared again oh there you are okay good okay if you'll like me to read it i will read it oh yes of course and by the way uh, uh a uh, her uh lucre's own senior poem has been found you know they asked seniors back in the past to write something i've got that but here what here's what was found in the cedar chest it says a voice from the grave said rise up good people in your might Ask your sheriff by what right. He seeks to run again, was foully murdered and thrown on well to die. Did I die in vain? O knights of Pythias and lions bold, O worthy masons of Kiwanis too, from my tomb I appeal to you, on your country is a stain because it seems I died in vain. I wonder why no arrest was made. Was your good sheriff so afraid? Is his backbone of the hue applied to jealousy and cowardice too? O men, hang not your heads in shame. Rise up, make your country worth its name, that you may speak with it of pride. Valentous lines no criminal shall hide. I cannot rest, though in my grave, while in your midst there hides a knave, a waiting, a waiting perhaps to, be, to bad and to slaughter someone else's only daughter. Though I am dead, my spirit soars. It sees mockery of your laws. It hears more will run again. It waits here, you say, she did not die in vain, lest we forget. And there's the poem that was found in a cedar chest a couple of years ago, out of the blue. And I guess, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say that's pretty descriptive. One, and see there again, you know, uh, the sheriff's time was more. And the implication is there was things that were known or apply, you know, imply that we're known. And I guess what gets me is uh, I'm a Mason. So when she says, you know, speak up, I had a friend of mine who claims to be a little bit of a medium said, well, she's asking you to solve it. I'm like, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I dare say whoever was really guilty has probably been dealt their own punishment by, by this time. Because um, only people that are left alive are in their 80s or 90s that were kids at the time. And uh, I've interviewed a few of them too. They all, all, all of the people that, of this area, uh, when this happened, have their own views and heard the story of campfire. You know, it's, uh, it's great who's done it, and you know, um, it's it's just one of those mysteries I don't think will ever fully be solved. Um, you know, unless someone finds in another cedar chest a, a written confession, uh, you know, left to posterity, like I did it. Or, you know, I don't think we'll ever fully know. Right. Because it's, I mean, there weren't even at that point in time, there weren't even crime scene photos or anything like that. I'm imagining. 
probably not in this area, probably in the big cities like New York, Chicago, maybe Charlotte. Uh, and, you know, and here's the thing, too. You know, this didn't happen around here. You know, uh, we can count on your hand probably the murders that were done in, you know, 50 years in this area. People got along. People were, people were related. Yeah, I'm related to families that are connected to this, not directly, but indirectly. Um, you know, I, I, I tell my kids when I teach that uh, I actually dated a cousin one time. And the reason is, is when you have the same 30 families for 200 years, same location. Now we are sort of inundated with people coming from outside the area. But when you have a small group, you know, uh, located in a small area, everyone knows everybody and everyone's sort of related. And this something of the old South or and also I think some parts of the Midwest in our own country that this is just normal at the time, you know, just the uh, so. And that's what makes it worse is the fact that, you know, this is something that was a besmirch to the community when just the loss on two families. I mean. Uh, you know, Herman, I believe, remarried. Uh, but, you know, you can never get over that. And I feel bad for the Westerlands, and I feel horrible for the overcaches that this happened. And the families are still in the area, and it's still being debated to this day. Right. And, I mean, that was Herman's family. Yeah, I mean, this family is... Family that was involved, possibly. So, family. what was he supposed were, to do? Yeah, newlyweds. And, you know, the the magic was still there, I'm sure. Uh, you know, and I, I can't imagine, you know, that type of loss at such a young age and then go right into World War II, not, not many years later. So it's rough. It was a, it was a tough life. Well, thank you for sharing that case with us. That that really is a fascinating case. And like you said, it's probably one that likely won't be solved because it's just, there's just been too much time passed. And unless somebody has hidden a deathbed confession somewhere in a journal. Yeah. We're not well, ever really going to be able to find that out. I will throw one thing ex else in, though. The SBI got involved. Oh, really? And a uh, strange thing is, from one report, they actually exhumed the body after burial and supposedly amputated a foot. Because the reason is there's some stuff on that non-shoed foot that didn't look right for the area, like it was different type of dirt that maybe should have been killed somewhere in brought back home we're not sure and you know where are those records you know i've been still trying to track that down and i've always said um it would be interesting if the families would not mind is if you took the case evidence we have and the reports that we have the interviews that we have uh, what if at some point in time we would do like a you know uh, sbi local sheriff's office morsel police whatever say how would you approach this case now compared to what, 85 years ago, what have you, you know, how would the approach be? Of course, now you have DNA analysis and stuff they just did not have. Uh, but it's a great, it's a interesting case that, um, like I said, to me, it's the, the oddest case I've run into uh, uh, in the Morsel Township area, for sure. Nothing like an interesting cold case, right? Right, that's right. So there are a few stories you shared in your, your book, Curse of the Wampus and other short spooky stories of Piedmont that I wanted to ask you about. Sure, One is the <laughs> this mountain lion-like creature that was known to kill large masses of livestock and the bulldogs that were supposed to guard them. Can you tell yeah. us more about this? Wow. Well, that you know, that's the that's one of the great ones of the area. 
um, the Wampus, and doesn't that sound so so us? It's named something called a Wampus. Also known as the Santer, S-A-N-T-E-R, was supposed to be a mythological creature. Uh, now, here's one I'll take you back in time. Uh, supposedly, it goes back to Cherokee folklore. Mm. Supposedly, a uh, young woman, uh, which put on the, the pelt of a mountain lion, was trying to sneak in sort of camouflage light to, to watch a ritual done by the elders. I think it was a ritual rite of passing for men or whatever. She wasn't supposed to be there. Well, the elders caught her and said, since you have been stealthy like a cat, you shall be one for all eternity. And she morphed with the, the pelt and became what became the wampus. That's a sort of a, the, the quote-unquote Native American take that this is a shapeshifter. Uh, different people have said that, uh, you know, it's a shapeshifter. Others said it's a, a type of, of mountain lion whose who's cries like that of a wailing woman and an, and an angry beast. That was one line. Um, but this uh, supposed creature has been seen from the Carolinas down to Georgia. Uh, people that are out in the woods a lot, uh, people that have no bear when they see a bear, they know mountain lions when they see it. And some people swear this is not it. Um, the, you know, besides some of the more extreme descriptions of it, they say it's, it's smaller than a mountain lion, but larger than like a lynx. And uh, the attacks at night uh, kills livestock. But also, as you mentioned, in 1931 in Shinville, right down the road, there again, everything's around the <laughs> this area here, right? Watch out. But um, supposedly this former reported uh, having purchased two bulldogs weighing about 120 pounds each. So those serious dogs were torn up like rags by something and uh, heard strange hollers and screams and all that. Um, and um, occasionally uh, you'll hear reports, in fact, uh, and down to, uh, I believe it was northern Georgia, that they actually established in, in uh, one or two towns like a curfew. Because this supposedly came during the certain times of the year, and uh, they weren't sure what it was. You know, posses have been sent out to try to track this thing down. They can't do it, or the dogs were killed trying to track it. So uh, we're not sure. Uh, I have a theory, though, and uh, if you want to hear my theory. <laughs> of course. Okay. Well, my theory is, is well, with every with every folklore, okay, with like the murder case, you have a body. Okay, we get that. We'll never know what happened, but there you go. But with every legend and folklore, there's usually a kernel of truth. Okay. I believe that the wampus may be a known thing. And what I think it is is something that very few people in this area have heard about. But I think at one time it had a greater range than it does now. And there's a creature called a jaguar rundi. It's like a mini jaguar. Okay. They're relegated to the border between Mexico and Texas. However, a couple of years ago in Florida on a golf course, a couple were seen. So you're talking about going from Texas to Florida, it's a pretty good stretch. Okay. Uh, people have coyotes around here. They say all, all over the place. I've only seen two in 20 years. And that were, those were flashes. Okay. And those were more numerous. So imagine a creature that is way more stealthy than a coyote. Blackish brown. I mean, if it was in a corner, you probably wouldn't even see it. Something that, you know, would totally be a, a night stalker. That creature could easily kill a dog. 
you think about a small, slightly miniature mountain lion. And uh, I believe that the Jaguar Rundies were probably had a greater range than we, than we knew in the past. They may have been now shrunk, but that's my personal theory. I said, you know, is there a creature? What you do is, is there a creature that exists that compares with the majority of the, let's say, more generalized descriptions? And this creature fits it. And if you hear the howl, uh, maybe on Google for your listeners, you can find a little, a uh, little video clip of a howl of one. It sounds really different. Uh, it certainly, I think, it would not sound like anything you've heard in the American South. Um, so uh, that's my theory. Uh, some people have said sometimes, though, that the newspaper, knowing that this is a hot topic, would occasionally run out to get more newspaper sales. And then some people said during certain times of, uh, and this is sort of shameful, but this is history, that certain times that uh, when there were protests for equal rights or something, or with uh, uh, people trying to meet to discuss about changing certain social strata, that occasionally the paper would run these things, knowing that this would make people scared to go out at night, things like that. So there's, I think it's been used for different things over time. But I do know for a fact that my great uncle, who'd been living on the lake all his life, was putting on a roof back around 2002 or three, and he and the worker saw something cross a cove and go on the bank, and they said, we didn't know what it was. And the description he gave matched what the other descriptions were. He said, it's not a bear, it's not a lynx, it's not a... But this thing was large and black and had claws and the eyes flashed and went into the woods. And he said, they all stopped working. and said, did you see that? So, there you go. Is Wampus still among us? Uh, maybe. Was it in the water at all? So it, he said it it had crossed uh, a little bit of the little bit of the cove, yeah. And see, and there again, you go. Well, if that was a cat, would really cats do that? You know, but right. uh, you know, there. I don't know. You know, um, you know. There again, it's uh, what if. Mm, that's interesting. It it kind of brings up the whole. The reason why I asked you about the water is the whole Nessie or not not Nessie. What do they call it? Normie. The, the the Lake Norman <laughs> creature that people have seen, yeah, which is probably just a large catfish. I you know I don't know. I've probably here's heard a lot the, of theories here, about that. Here's, yeah, here's the problem with that. Okay, Lake Norman is not connected to the ocean. You know, most of the sightings like uh, with Nessie and Loch Ness and with Ogopogo up north, uh, you know, the what in Canadian area. Um, you know, they have connections to the sea. And I still personally, this just me personally, I believe there's some things we do not know about. You know, I, I like to think we don't know everything and I don't believe we do. But if there's something that that resembles like a plesiosaur or whatever, and it just comes into for a couple of weeks for, you know, I don't know, having babies and going back out to sea, you need to have a connection with the sea. I think if there's something in Lake Norman other than a... Uh, uh, a, a large catfish or something like that. I think someone would have, you know, it's just, it's, it's a man-made lake essentially. And uh, yeah, but, but who knows people see things and you can't explain it. And like I said, what did my uncle see? What the wampus will never know, you know, so. But they all saw it. So it was something, something, something. The question is what? Right. So what about, I had never heard, reports that people have seen ghosts of British redcoats marching at night along Langtree Road? 
Okay, well, I know about that one because that's my that's really my focus. I'm I'm a teacher, high school teacher by day, but a adjunct professor by night. And um, the uh, Battle of Collins Ford is sort of my forte. Mm. And uh, in 1881, the British did uh, what was called the Southern Campaign. They came through Charleston and moved north um, under Lord Charles Cornwallis and General Davidson, which Davidson College is named after led a group of about 800 or so odd patriots trying to slow down the British. Um, this is about the time that Daniel Morgan uh, changed off commands with uh, a guy by the name of Green, Mayfair Green, uh, Greensboro, this is Nathaniel Green. And uh, what happened was the British were camped near Ramsworth's Mill and uh, got word that the uh, Americans, well, this is going into, you know, like December to January the next year. Half of the men that were in the Patriot Army here were only enlisted for a year. They had like a yearly enlistment and many were coming back, but they want to go home, check on the family, house a farm, you know. So if you're the British commander and you hear up the road less than a couple hours march, that you have a change of command with someone from the north that doesn't know the area and you hear that probably half of the forces faith might face you is leaving for a time. What better time to, and it's winter when traditionally the British didn't go on the attack and Cornwallis showing the, you know, the, the, the tactical skill said, we're going, he burned some of his baggage. He told his men, we're going to get them before they get across to the dam. And he leaves an attack. The thing is, is that he was spotted by spies and reports got back to Davidson says, Hey, they're coming. And Davidson had actually met with Green and Morgan and William Washington, a cousin of George, on the banks of the Catawba River. And they were discussing about, okay, he can cross at either Cowan's Ford, Beatty's Ford, which is where they were talking. You know, the lake wasn't there yet. Uh, Tools Ford or Tuckasegee, and as they're talking, a redcoat showed up across the river. And Davidson's like, oh, my gosh. Get get the army, get to Salisbury, and then get up to Guilford Courthouse, which is another major battle in the Southern Campaign, and says, you know, get out of here. I'll hold them off as long as I can. So Davidson set up two lines of defense like speed bumps to slow the British down. And uh, what people don't realize, too, in this area is that the one reason the British came down here was to gain uh, men. There were a lot of loyalists in the South. That you know, we're not affected by the Sugar Act, or you know, the Patriot stuff really was focused around Boston and New York. So, uh, people forget that uh, there was an entire legion of cavalry, uh, called the American Legion, led by a guy named Tarleton. And uh, this is brother against brother stuff, you know, King's Mountain. People think, oh, the British were there. There's only one British soldier at King's Mountain, and that was Major Patrick Ferguson. Everyone else was born American. You know, they were deciding which side to be on. And what happened was Davidson is uh, the, the British cross at night, led by a traitor, I might add, a loyalist. And uh, D- Davidson is killed, and the men retreat from the from the, uh, from the the river back to the rally point, which is Torrance's Tavern. Now, that is off near... Not on exactly, but near where Langtree Road is, that off-ramp area. And uh, for now, here's where this is my one little pat on the back here is the fact that you know those of us that were locals were told pretty much this that the the 
the fight at the river was tough. Some of the Davison's killed. Some of the guys got back to the tavern were having a drink, calm their nerves, and the British suddenly show up. Okay. That came from uh, General Graham's account of the battle, but he wasn't even there. So we're if you, if, let me ask you this. If I said, hey, some guys showed up uh, and had a drink and the British show up, a few guys, what number do you think? When I say a few guys got back from the fight. Like 10, maybe? Okay, yeah, you're talking about like a handful, right? Well, what I found out is the fact that uh, it was several hundred people were involved in this fight. And you know, what I came down to is when I was ser uh, searching the pension records, is that in the 1820s and 30s, the United States government gave a pension to those survivors of the war. That showed where you were and what you did and have back background to get your pension. Like, yes, I served. What I did was I mistyped the word Torrance. I put Terrence or Torrance, not T-O-R-R-E-N-C like we spell it now. I spelled different ways. Guess what? Instead of getting 40 hits, I got several hundred. And it came down to the fact we didn't have standardized education. And this fight ended up being where, when the British got there, they debated attacking because Davidson left a second line of defense. In fact, even guys from South Carolina had come up to help defend, and the British launched this massive attack uh, down that road. And uh, it was a fight that went from, like you said, a hand, what you think of, you've just been told through you know, oral history, a handful of guys, and they burned the tavern. It turned out to be, I estimate, about 700 people get into a fight. Wow. Now, that is a battle, especially for that era. And uh, the British do bust through. They lose 28 horses on the attack. They were shot out or, you know, and uh, the British uh, come close to. In fact, what's interesting is after they broke through the defenses at the tavern. Uh, they did send some elements on up the road towards Salisbury, and they did fight some guys, a little skirmish fighting, and they thought it was guys from the tavern that got back. What they did was they got to the back end of the Patriot Army that was retreating. They were that close. Hmm. We had proper uniforms or flags. They would have known something was up, and we came that close to losing. And uh, Davidson died, you know, doing his job, slowing them down, and, and just nothing when Cornwallis got there with the last groups coming over, he said, burn the tavern, which may be on the edge of what is now Lowe's headquarters property. We're not sure. I have my theory about where it is. And of course, Lowe's doesn't want us scouting for stuff on the property, which I fully respect. But uh, I believe that the uh, the fight happened just off of their property because uh, I know the road was shifted a couple of, uh, about a hundred yards in the 1830s because of drainage but for years okay going back to your paranormal stuff but for years uh people down that road had passed on that certain times of the year this was in february it was a nasty night that they they would hear you know what sound like troops moving up the road uh i was given a talk at the at a, and this is eerie to me i was given a talk at one of the dar meetings and one of the ladies this nice old lady came up and said said, my grandmother said that she saw the redcoats and, and ghost form going up the road and, you know, and all this. And here I am trying to shake hands and sell a book or two. And when I turned around, she was gone. 
you know, it's like I looked all over the room for her because I want to get the story, you know, from my own personal. And it's like she just vanished. And I was like, okay, that's scary. <laughs> that's interesting. You know, so, uh, but yeah, and, and I do have one or two, hand, like where a couple of guys got hand-hand fights with these guys. And these were Americans that sided with the king, not the Patriot calls. And supposedly one of them is buried. I might add out in the woods near Langtree. Uh, we'll never know. So maybe it's this uh, loyalist soldier that's been condemned for not joining the proper side. Uh, that's now cursing the development of the area. <laughs> Could be. Lang tree. So there you go. Interesting. Well, I wanted to mention this. I just thought of this. Years ago, I was on a message board. It was a message board for moms, and I had joined it when my kids were infants. But for some reason, and you don't know who the people are that are on there because everybody has right. usernames and everything. But someone mentioned that she lived out, you know where Hager's Ferry is? Okay, yeah, roughly, yes. Towards Denver. Yeah. So you go past 73 towards Denver. And she she lived in a neighborhood out there. And she mentioned that one night she couldn't sleep and she was in her kitchen and she looked out her kitchen window and she saw like an apparition in her yard of a woman that looked like she was gardening. So she was in like pioneer style clothing and she, like she was, something. yeah yeah and i thought that was so interesting because when you think about what that area was like for so many years it was farmland and right yeah i mean and i don't think we know the whole thing you know i do know that um they've tried to apply science to some of this they said that like granite uh, retains energy and things like that that you know we're seeing we're seeing like if you ran a copy off on a copier, that something was there is not, uh, I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not sure. You know, here's the thing that I keep coming back to energy can never be destroyed. It can only be transformed. So who's to say that, you know, after this life, regardless of religious views or background, that maybe certain things leave an imprint, you know, and uh, especially I think if, when you're talking about like the soldiers, you know, this is a violent, you, you know, those guys that marched up that road had just seen people they knew were killed or they had killed. And, you know, they're deep in a country that's not, you know, it's not England or Scotland anymore. They're deep in the colonies and, you know, they've, they've already, they had a win or two, but they, everywhere they go through Charlotte, they got stung like hornets as the phrase went when they went out, you know, and you're having to, and they just walked, they just on their tippy toes got across Catawba in freezing water, you know. So I think if there was something to this energy theory that, you know, certainly that that would leave an imprint, you know, if, if this is something that's in your life that's a defining moment, especially in your 20s, you know, teens, late 20s, um, late teens or 20s, you know, who's, who's to say? Who's to say? And, um, but of course, too, as far as stories go around Halloween, is uh, sometimes just to keep the kids inside at night. You can use a little bit of history to your advantage, like the boogeymen. There were boogeymen, but they're called Borghese men off the coast of Malaysia. And uh, that word got corrupted over time. So I tell the kids about that, that there are boogeymen. They're like, whoa, you know, so there we go. Yeah, I think it was last year I was reading searching haunted colleges and universities and i 
coming across statements by people at colleges, professors and things like that, that said a lot of these like legends and folklore about these hauntings at colleges, they're not meant to be scary. They're meant to sort of welcome the incoming students into their new environment and and give them a sense of attachment to where they live. Because not all of them, you know, a lot of them are very similar. It's, oh, a student died and now you see yeah. her walking around campus and things like that. But they're not always meant to be scary. I mean, there are some scary ones out there. Right. But I thought it was interesting the way those have evolved over time. And that if you look at a lot of them, you can see a pattern where a legends all have a similar, they're, they're very similar yeah. in what they're saying. I, I actually investigated a classic that... Uh, Back in the 1960s, there was a, a, a husband and wife team called Roberts, Nancy Roberts. And I can't remember her husband's name. I think it's Larry. But they put out a series of books uh, called, you know, like Hall to Carolinas. And there was like three or four of them. And I think she did the writing and he did the photography. But he he did the fancy double exposure. And, you know, as kids, you know, this is for internet and gaming and all this other stuff. Uh, these were fascinating to read. And there's one in there that I remember called The Girl at the Underpass in what is now is Jamestown, North Carolina. So a couple of years ago, I'm going to track that thing down. And sure enough, this is the cover of my book um, is on there is uh, I went to Jamestown and, and you know, you go to the archives and, and, and there again, you try to make good friends with your librarians and archives so they can help you out. And I said, you know, I'm just curious. Went, oh, yeah, there's the case. And, uh, you know, and I think that you talked about how things get tweaked as the tale goes on, that she's coming back from the prom and got in a fight with her boyfriend. Turned out there was a lady named Lydia and she was coming back from a New Year's Eve party in 1924, ran her T-model into the side of the overpass and died. Well, there weren't many deaths related to vehicles and alcohol in the 1920s in this area, so that surely would been big but here's the thing there was a real girl and there was a car wreck and she did die in it and the family's still in the area so they didn't want me to you know respect that but uh, what's interesting is that over the last you know what 80 years or now going on close to 100 is that the number of these people that have picked up a lady supposedly in that area and drove her home and when they got out of the car she's gone these have been firemen, these have been police, these have been lawyers, have been college shoots, have been, you know, and you say they're, they're seeing something where, you know, these are people, most of them don't even know the story at all, not even, you know, have out, out of towners, this lady in distress. And what's interesting is that the overpass moved. The original overpass is now about 100 yards deep into the, you know, kudzu and was even spookier. And that's why I got that still shot from my book. A friend of mine was able to dress up as a, in a dress. We got Goodwill and, you know, wave, you know, and that's the shot on the book, which is, and I'll be honest with you. Uh, she, uh, her name's Des, Desi. She's a cousin of mine. And, and uh, when she was getting dressed to do the picture, I actually went up over the overpass and went yeah, like that. She about didn't do the picture. So over on that one, over some Bojangles, I think. But, uh, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, just sometimes the numbers do not add up to. You can explain away just as a as a as a something to scare the kids. You know, there's something to some of these 
what they're seeing, we don't know. You know, is there something beyond? Um, I think so. Uh, but I don't think we can scientifically explain all of it. And, and like I said, um, you know, <laughs> it's it's interesting to think, you know, is, is there stuff out there that we can't really get a grasp on? It's true. Uh, when I was visiting my daughter, she goes to the University of Alabama, and there is uh, allegedly a ghost in their library, the main library. And she was, I think, maybe the president's wife at some point, like one of the founding president. And there is a floor on the university that the elevator is not supposed to stop at because it's where the archives are. And if you see the elevator stop there, then mm -hmm. supposedly she has gotten off it and is walking around. Oh and we went to visit her and we were waiting on the elevator. And my daughter said, look, it stopped on that floor. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, well, that'd be interesting. The ghost be like, do you know you're doing decimal system? <laughs> you know, things like that. Well, I'll tell you one real quick that I heard from a good friend of mine. You know, the most. Supposedly, it's haunted place in America is like Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Gettysburg College was there during the war, and that some of the some of the buildings there were used as makeshift hospitals. You know, three day battle. You know, they estimate probably forty thousand amputations. I mean, it's a horrible fight. But uh, I, I do know from a friend of mine that went there. They heard from one of the guys there, out of the security guard that said that these two young ladies undergrads were there in the library and they had hit the button to go down between elevators what reminded me of it and said that they went past the first floor went to the basement area and with the door open they were right in the middle of the civil war said there were soldiers laying around and people saying come help this man put put your hand here stop the bleeding and come on and these figures were most of them to come help like nurses and they hit the closed the door button went back up and went screaming out of, you know, the college and calling security. And they went down and looked and everything was okay. But they were, weren't about to go back in the, you know. And he said that he's, there's no question they were not faking this. They were terrified out of their mind, you know, what they saw. So who knows, you know. But it's interesting how many are around, like, college libraries. But, mm -hmm. hey, if you're cursed, might as well catch up on your reading. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, what, what you going to do, you know? That's true. It's as good a place as any to be stuck forever, right? No leaks. Well, <laughs> are there any other spooky stories or legends you wanted to share with our listeners? Uh, well, can I tell you a real quick personal one? Sure. And I hope I'm not boring your, your listeners. But um, I teach at Morsel High School. Okay. And, uh, and this is nothing bad. Uh, but uh, we've redid a lot of the school. The school's very beautiful. Um, you know, we've got a performing arts center. But one of the buildings that was torn down, so I can mention this, was the old Roland R. Morgan Auditorium. It was built back during the, I think, late 50s, early 60s. And it was here for through when I was in school. Well, here's, here's a personal story about a ghost story, but has, a, I think, a nice ending. So uh, I grew up, my grand, grandparents were, were in World War II, and my grandfather, Stone Street, played the trumpet. He was in Morsel High School's first band, and then when we went to the service, occasionally he would play, like, taps or 
reveille and stuff like that. He was sort of like a surrogate trumpeter. Well, I grew up listening to big band music and things like that. And in 1982, I was, uh, though I was a freshman, you were in high school at the time, the high school band, and I played trombone. Dad, my father played trumpet in the Navy band during the Vietnam era. So we're, we're a bunch of musicians. And uh, our director at the time, uh, Dr. Bruce Bulls, said, hey, I would like to make a, a, a sort of a jazz band, you know, like play some big bop and, you know, some uh, 30s and 40s, you know, big band music. And I'm like, and it's fun to play. If you ever play a music instrument, big band is fun to play. It's real easy and it's fun. So, of course, I'm like, oh, I got to get into that. So uh, we formed the, the band, uh, the jazz band. Well, December 16th, see, notice how this stuck in my mind, I know the dates. 1982 was the band concert where they have everyone from fifth grade playing their kazoos up through the high school band. And then we were the last show. So uh, I told my granddad all that week, I said, you got to come hear us. You got, we're playing, you know, you know, Benny Goodman stuff that you like. And, you know, I'll come, I'll come, you know, I'll, I'll come hear you. So uh, we, uh, we play that night and of course the house lights aren't on yet. So we play through it and we rock it and, you know, just have a great time. And when the house lights come on, I go out to the to the uh, seating area and I find my family. Everyone's there except my granddad. And I asked my grandma, I said, where's granddad? She said, well, he wasn't feeling well today. He put his jacket and hat on and got to the car and said, I just, I, I just don't feel well. I'll tell Chris I hear him some other time. So um, I asked my mom, I know at least three times, let me go by and talk to my granddad. I want to tell him about the concert. Well, tomorrow's your last day at school. You'll see him over Christmas break. Well, we go home that next day, go to school, and, you know, about 930 or something like that, and I get, you know, the call to the office. Will you please send Chris Dunstry up with his uh, bags to the main office? And everyone's like, ooh, you know, and I'm like, what the heck? So I get up there, and, you know, I'm like, you know, and my mom just comes out and says, look, you're old enough, so I'm going to tell you, your, your grandfather passed away this morning. And I thought she was doing a bad joke. I'm like, you're just getting me out of school. We're going to get some Mickey D's and go shopping. Well, we went to the house, and sure enough, he had died. In fact, there was still some of the medical stuff, you know, when they come in and try to, you know, stuff. And needless to say, it was a horrible Christmas. My dad, I think, blacked that out in his mind, you know, just that Christmas. Well, here's the thing. The next month, right before school started, I, we were going to go play somewhere. I think at a local nursing home, they were like, would you come play for us? So uh, Mr. Boyle said, um, why don't we, because the band stuff was still set in the band pit that like the night we played, it was just left up there. And we'll go through the whole thing. And if there's a piece we need to work on, we'll work on it. So we go up there and warm up. About the time we're warming up, the door to the balcony opens. And in walks a somewhat heavyset man wearing a red jacket and a British racing cap, you know, the ones that short point. And my friend, Chris, goes, is that your dad? And my dad had come in and sat in and played with us because we played trumpet, you know, just keep his chops loose. And I looked and I said, I think it is. And I waved and this figure waved. My friend Chris waved. And uh, we played through the whole set like we did the night before. And this figure got up, waved again, and I waved. And 
went out the door and about the time the door shut, this is two flights, two big flights of steps. My dad walks in like the door went shut. Dad walks in and everyone's like, how the hell did he get down here so fast? He didn't have a jacket or hat. And, you know, I think what even me and Chris, my friend Chris goes, how did you get down here so fast from up there? And he said, what do you mean? He says, I was out on the landing or the door entrance talking to one of the other school officials about doing some bamboo stuff. And we were like, well, who came out of the door? Because you could see right up. If someone came out, you'd see them. I didn't see anyone come out of the door. Here's the kicker. About a week later, my grandmother's going through my granddad's stuff. You, know, you might want to keep this. We're going to take this for Christian mission or goodwill. And she throws down on the, the bed the red jacket and the ball cap. Just take this, your dad. It's brand new. I got it for granddad. And I said, looked at her and said, Did, was he wearing that the night he was going to come to the concert? She went, how'd you know that? So I like to think granddad got to hear it. And when I told my friends in the band, they all went, you, oh my gosh. So, right, I don't it's not a, too. so I don't think it's a bad ghost story. No. I like to think granddad got to hear the concert after all. Sounds like he did. So there you go. I think that's a great story. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to, to share these stories with our listeners. And I know they're really going to enjoy this. Well, I appreciate it. And I wish everyone a happy and safe Halloween season. (laughs) Thank you. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. We'd like to thank Chris Street once again for taking the time out to be interviewed for the show. I put the links to his books in the show notes so you can check them out. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd also like to support the show in a small way, you can buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com Renee Robertson. Thank you so much for those who have already supported me through this platform. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. Sound editing is provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.